MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, July 20th, the eve of the primetime hearing. <laughs> and this is episode number 79. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. With me, as always, is real-life lawyer and my friend, Andrew Torres. I, I like, uh, th- A, thanks for having me, Allison. Always fun to be here with That's you. That's your show, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Thanks for doing a show with me. How about that? Yeah, there you um, go. There we go. Thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll use that one from here on out. Thanks for doing a show with me. Uh, every week, I'm I'm thankful we get to uh, sit down and uh, share our thoughts, and sometimes they are repeats of long <laughs> phone conversations, text conversations we've had that we're like, man, we just got to get this out. <laughs> and I love that this is uh, this is primetime hearing eve. Mm-hmm. The January sex committee's been pretty good with uh, their their evaluation of what merits. Uh, bringing public attention so i am very very excited about tomorrow's hearing not excited that of course you know it's after i record opening arguments and you know after you record the beans and you know we'll be uh, probably breaking out an emergency episode or two but uh, we'll see what happens yeah yeah definitely and yeah we're looking for i'm looking forward to to hearing from pottinger and, yeah. and matthews um, a couple of people who are going to be able to corroborate Hutchinson's testimony. We're going to hear more from Sip Baloney, Patsy Baloney. Patsy Baloney. <laughs> it's going to be good. Uh, but before we go any further today into our, you know, reenactments of texts and phone conversations we have about <laughs> court filings, uh, we want to thank our new patrons. Uh, Marjan Masterman, Katie Steinmetz, Michael May, David Kittle, the gas-powered sharp thing, <laughs> and Carrie Monroe. And also... Since grand juries are secret, there's no way to know how many grand juries are in this room right now. Love that one. <laughs> Kimberly, James Turner, Duff Dyer, Heather Nicholson, Steve Kuno, and Americone Dream. That is my favorite. I... B and J, by the way. <laughs> Americone Dream. Oh, Ben and... and Jerry's. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> Absolutely, it's a good one. And thanks to all of you, seriously. Thank you so much. Uh, and remember, you too can get a shout out by heading over to the patreon.com slash aisle45pod and pledging as little as a buck an episode. You'll get the ad-free version of the show. You'll get our bonus Zoom calls and stuff. And we just, you know, just stuff. <laughs> we deliberately, you have a lawyer on the show, so our promises are deliberately vague. Mm-hmm. There you go. Thank you. And now on with the show. <laughs> So, uh, breaking news late Monday night, <clears throat> making my life miserable. I'm yeah, kidding. yeah, mine too. And don't you dare get me wrong. I am in love with Rachel Maddow. Sure. I love her. I love her life. I love her fishing. I love everything she does. I love the way she starts in 1962 and brings us up to, to, to the present. I love the cocktail hour. Yeah, no, it's. That is always a good time. But last night, the Rachel Maddow Show uncovered a two-page memo from Merrick Garland, our attorney general, on election year sensitivities that has a lot of people wondering if it's a statement about indicting or not indicting Donald Trump in connection with the January 6th investigation. The memo is now public. We've reviewed it, and we're prepared to say, no, no, it does not. There are really three things this memo does, and we're going to work through all of them for you, because I promised this, I promised everybody, everyone's as soon as that memo came out, they all came over to my Twitter feed and said, what say you, Gil? 
What say you about this memo? So here we go. Yeah. So first things first, this is a two page memo, but pretty much the entire second page is about the Hatch Act. I know you have thoughts about this, Allison. Uh, but, uh, you know, our listeners uh, might recall the Hatch Act from such Donald Trump things as Kellyanne Conway violating the Hatch Act more than 60 times and then saying, ooh, let me know when the jail sentence starts, right? So the Hatch Act is 5 U.S.C. Section 7321 at SEC. It's a good thing, right? It is designed to prevent executive branch employees from Doing two things, A, engaging in partisan political activities while they're on duty, or B, using federal resources, the imprimatur of their office for those partisan political activities. That's it. Now, the problem with the Hatch Act is that the punishment is at the discretion of the president. And so when you're a criminal and your boss is a criminal, it's pretty easily subverted, right? So the entire second page of, hey, in this administration, we take the Hatch Act seriously strikes me as unambiguously a good thing. What say you, Allison? Yeah, and you might ask, well, how does it violate the Hatch Act to, you know, investigate criminals? It doesn't. What violates the Hatch Act is when you open investigations into someone for political purposes, strictly for political purposes. It's been the DOJ policy for a very, very long time. And as, you know, Rachel was reading this and saying, okay, so what he's saying is, you, you know, we don't want to uh, indict people or announce investigations for the sole purpose of impacting political discourse and elections specifically. Right. So that's why the DOJ has this unwritten policy that usually around 60 days before a primary or a general election, you don't do that. That's the part that violates the Hatch Act. Most most people think of violating the Hatch Act as, you know, I'm Dr. Gill and I work for the Department of Veterans Affairs and you should vote for you know, Joe Biden and help yeah. and raise money for him. Yeah, that is a violation of the Hatch Act. That's a very blatant violation of the Hatch Act. But doing anything to help or subvert a political candidate for office violates the Hatch Act. And that's what this would do. It's just a reminder of shit that already exists, if you, you know, if you ask me. Yeah, no, I, that is exactly right. Let's kind of drill down a, a tiny bit on that. The the question is, what counts as solely or primarily for a political purpose, right? So you appear, right, you're, you're Kellyanne Conway, and you use your official White House Twitter account to, you know, shill for your daughter's clothing, right? That's obviously a violation of the Hatch Act, right? You, you use that to promote political activities, or in the context of this memorandum, you are a United States attorney and you time your press conferences, your public statements in such a way that unmistakably has a political cast to it. What this memorandum is saying is don't do that. So far from right, this being an ominous warning that nobody is going to get indicted of any consequence. I actually read the Hatch Act stuff as saying, um, yeah, when you were talking about making public disclosures about potential candidates, make sure that you are discussing the law and not the political implications. If you don't plan on indicting anybody that has any political consequences, you don't need to reference the Hatch Act. Yeah. And a lot of people have been asking me, hey, maybe Garland just put this out there to entice Donald to run and, and declare before the midterms so it would fuck it up for the Republicans. And I was like, no, that's exactly what this memo prevents. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> our our side has got to have a like triple Xanatos gambit for everything. No, look, that's pretty meta, though, right? It, it, it is, and and, 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 and hats off to uh, you know our listener who uh, who thought of that. It, it, look, we're gonna get into this when we discuss uh, the the continuing meat of this memorandum. I disagree. I think you also disagree with Merrick Garland's view that. The primary concern right now is that the DOJ not appear too political. Okay, but that's clearly uh, that's clearly Merrick Garland's view, right? I don't want us to be viewed as a political body after watching the travesty that was Bill Barr as Attorney General, and I can understand why you would come to that view. I don't think it's the highest priority. I I strongly disagree with him on a lot of means, but I don't think that he's coming from a bad place to have that standpoint. Right. Because remember, all of us had the big problem. 
problem with Bill Barr because he was treating the office of the attorney general like the office of Donald Trump's personal counsel. And so steering us back on track, I, I, I can't I can't fault him for having that as a motivation. Yeah, no, I might fault him a little bit for mentioning Barr at all. And we'll talk about I think that we in a will. second. <laughs> but the, the second thing this memo does is reiterate longstanding policy at, at, at justice, main justice. And that's page one. I was talking about it a minute ago. Um, and the, the title raised some alarm. It's called Statements, Investigations, and Charging Near an Election. The first few paragraphs reiterate DOJ's longstanding policy that partisan politics must play no role in the decisions of federal investigators or prosecutors regarding any investigations or criminal charges or announcements, etc. Everyone can agree with that. Law enforcement officers and prosecutors may never select the timing, as you said, of public statements attributed or not, investigative steps, criminal charges, or any other action in any matter or case for the purpose, for the purpose of affecting an election. You can do it for the purpose of the rule of law. Right, right. But you can't do it for the purpose of affecting an election. Like you said, you can't time it so your lawyer's announcement comes out and, you know, screws somebody over for their, their political uh, campaign uh, or for the purpose of giving an advantage or disadvantage to a candidate. Right. And and there's kind of two different things subsumed in that in that idea, isn't there? Yeah. So the first and, and again, these are. You just read that word for word from section one of the memo. We want to be clear, right? We're not adding or taking away from anything that Garland has said. He cites to two authorities here. I'm going to take them backwards. The first is consult section 9-85 of the Justice Manual, right? Um, And section 9-85 is the longstanding policy that says, hey, if you've got a question, you should discuss it with the public integrity section or pin. Gosh, this was just made for me. So when you say <laughs> put a pin in that, uh, the, the, the public integrity section of the criminal division of the DOJ. And that is, in fact, the second piece of guidance that Garland gives. So it all converges on, hey, go talk to pin before you investigate political crimes in an election year and talk to pin when you are navigating through a difficult time period, right? And again, want to be clear, this is longstanding policy. This is not a change in any way from any prior DOJ, other than, you know, this DOJ is not in the pocket of a corrupt criminal president. Yeah, before Garland put this memo out, the prosecutors in the Middle District of Florida would have had to go to pin and probably the attorney general if they wanted to indict Matt Gates, because we are within... Uh, the window of the primary election down in Florida. Yep. And then right after that, we will be within the window of the general election down in Florida. And part of me wonders if this wasn't kind of written for him in the first place, because, you know, they've been trying to push back Greenberg's sentencing. I think they, if they were going to charge Gates, they wanted to get that trial in while before his sentencing so that they could have the full cooperation to be considered Mm. at his sentencing. And the judge is like, guys, it's been a fucking year. We're doing this on December 1st. And they're like, we can't possibly get Matt Gates tried by December 1st, you crazy person. And he's like, I'm sorry, I don't care. You can always come back with a 35 whatever amendment to sentencing if he cooperates and does a good job. We could we could change his sentence after that. He didn't say that, but like that's yeah, I'm gaming out a hypothetical here uh, because you don't want to indict Matt Gates close to his primary. Now, a lot of people might say, and Andrew, what would you say to this? A lot of people might say, I want all the facts. I want to know Gates is a criminal before I go into the voting booth. And I, I get that. So, so what's the answer I, I get, there? I get that too. <laughs> and, I, you know, we could do an entire episode on what's up with the Gates lack of prosecution. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I know, I know. let's, let's leave that specific investigation to the side because I have real questions about the delay, uh, but it, it, it is for any trivial, race, for right, any it race, is trivially easy. Look at the party where in response to every announcement by the January 6th committee, what have you seen by the Republicans? You've said, yeah, but what about Hunter Biden's laptop? Blah, blah, blah. And so if you normalize the Department of Justice arresting political candidates prior to a primary, right, indicting or arresting political candidates right before their primary, just imagine what happens if you turn that power over to the other side. Right. right. What we call and, the shoe is on the other foot. Yeah, syndrome. And, and 
And for everybody who says, yeah, but they're just going to do that anyway the next time the Republicans take power. Again, look at the January 6th committee. No, they would not. Right. We, we've talked about this on our respective shows. Right. Steve Engel is a goddamn monster. Right. Like Steve Engel was on board with John Yu's torture memos in the Bush administration. Right. He has been a loyal lapdog for the cause of evil since time immemorial. And yet when it came time for somebody to do something unprecedented in a way that that crossed his personal boundaries, Steve Engel was like, yeah, no, I'm not on board with replacing Jeff Rosen with Jeff Clark and pretend and seizing voting machines and pretending like the election was stolen. Go fuck yourself. Right. And 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 look, I am not saying that the Republican go fuck yourself line shouldn't be higher than it is. OK, <laughs> where that bar is, is not high enough. We all agree with that on this show. But to pretend that they don't have lines is to ignore the fact that we escaped from January 6th, you know, with a transfer of power, at least. And so when the other side weaponizes that, right, it makes it easier for our political opponents to then say, oh, oh, yeah, you want to arrest Matt Gates the day before his primary election? Fine. Wait till you see what happens when we take power in 2024, 2028 or whatever. Right. And 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 that's part. I know nobody wants to hear the institutionalist line coming from me. No, but, right. But like, but, you can't unfuck democracy by subverting it. That's it. That's right. And 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 you know, one of the things. Look, like, I certainly agree. I I view this the way I view starry decisis. Right. That is, Western democracies, generally speaking, do not use. You know, lock her up. Do not generally use the criminal justice system as a political tool. It sucks that we had two things happen during the Trump administration. Number one, uh, uh, we had a kleptocracy as a government, right? Like we had criminals running the government from top to bottom. And number two, we had them also trying to weaponize the criminal justice system against their political opponents. So I, I get all of that. And I guess what I would say is that I support the the DOJ policy, which says um, not you can't ever arrest somebody before their primary, but that you cannot use or time the resources of the Department of Justice to for the purpose of giving an advantage or disadvantage to a candidate or political party. So if you have to like this guy's a clear and present danger to society, you got to get him off the streets. And it happens to be, you know, We've made that case a week before the primary. OK, then you have to persuade the attorney general that that's a good idea. And yeah, yeah. You, you can definitely indict and arrest political candidates. You just can't do it corruptly. That's all yep. this, this thing says. And so the, the, the pin yep. is led by Corey Amundsen, mm -hmm. longstanding career civil servant, someone well-respected within the department, someone who was an early and vocal opponent of the big lie back in 2020. When Trump, under the cover of a memo authored by Amundsen's then-boss Bill Barr, demanded that the FBI continue to investigate Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss for baseless allegations that they committed election fraud in Georgia, Amundsen put his neck on the line and wrote an email on December 7th to the FBI telling them not to. Quote, Secretary of State investigators have already conducted, recorded interviews with the individuals at issue, and such interviews reportedly revealed nothing to suggest nefarious activity with regard to the integrity of the election. The FBI's re-interviewing those individuals at this point and under the current circumstances risks great damage to the department's reputation, including the possible appearance, the possible appearance, of being motivated <laughs> by partisan concerns, unquote. So that's who's who, that's who heads up the pin. Yeah. So now, OK, we've gotten through the Hatch Act. We've gotten through the pin. That leaves us with the third part, the genuinely controversial part of this memo. And one that I got to say, I, I agree with you. I love Rachel Maddow, but I, I think she really misrepresented this. I understand. I get it. OK, so. Let's 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 drill down on the memo. It's the last paragraph of page one. Let me read it to you in its entire. This is it. This is the troubling part of the memorandum. If you are on the left with us, quote, finally, department employees must also adhere to the additional requirements issued by the attorney general. <laughs> that's Bill Barr does not name him on February 5th, 2020 
governing the opening of criminal and counterintelligence investigations by the department, including its law enforcement agencies, related to politically sensitive individuals and entities. Any questions regarding the scope or requirements of that February 2020 AG memorandum should be directed to Penn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's be blunt. That February 5th, 2020 Bill Barr memo was absolutely designed to protect Trump. Yep. At a time when AUSAs like Brandon Van Grack were mm. perceived as going rogue in the Michael Flynn case. And there was a palpable fear that someone would bring a case against Trump without Barr's permission. To do so, the memo required three things. That any investigation into a declared candidate for president or vice president, a presidential campaign, or a senior staffer must get written approval from the attorney general. Two, that any investigation into a declared candidate for Congress or a congressional campaign must notify and consult with the assistant attorney general and U.S. attorneys with jurisdiction over the matter, but need not get their approval. Uh-huh. And three, that any investigation into illegal campaign contributions or expenditures must give written notice but need not consult or get approval from the assistant attorney general and U.S. attorneys with jurisdiction. Yep. So, like you said, <laughs> those rules were obviously pretextual at the time, and bad actors can and do take advantage of the willingness of good people to follow the rules, right? I'll also add that Bill Barr made it super clear that he was just out to protect his buddy because page three of the memo says that those, those three requirements, right, in descending order, quote, shall remain in effect throughout the 2020 elections and until withdrawn or amended by further order of the attorney general, right? So yeah, we're here to protect Trump. So that's why this Garland memo was uh, necessary, right? He could have said, nope, that, that those bar uh, February 2020, like get him out of here. Uh, he could have said, as he did, yes, I'm adopting and extending that, that memo. Uh, he could have done anything in between, but Garland had to say something because the way it was written was, hey, the, uh, this only is in effect for the 2020 election and until the attorney general does something about it. OK. Um, and, and, and that. So gets he us had back to, to address it. He yeah. had to address that bar memo. Yeah. So so now for the part that I disagree with. Right. And we, we, we hinted at this earlier. I think right now the danger of DOJ inaction in the face of political corruption is way worse than the perception of meddling. And again, that's because we had four years of Donald Trump. But, you know, in, in 20s, you know, the flip side, the flip side of the argument is think of how you felt in 2016. Every single time Jim Comey was like, I have another missive that I would like to read about Hillary Clinton's emails. Uh, uh, Republican, lifelong Republican James Comey, who very clearly intended to and did, although I think he miscalculated, medal in the 2016 presidential election those were those dumps were timed and uh so i don't think that it is not only do i not think that it is invalid i, I remember how you felt every time comey <sighs> took the mic yeah yeah no absolutely and i mean either way this memorandum absolutely does not say that trump and his cronies won't be indicted um first of all what it actually does is, and, and this is kind of the buried lead in this memo, because Trump is under investigation by, by the Department of Justice. He's under investigation for the 15 boxes. He's under investigation in the Navarro case, whatever that weird fucking subpoena was that named him specifically. Right. I still can't figure out. I think it's obstruction of Congress. But, what, you know, what the fuck is that? Uh, which means and, and that has happened since this memo was written which means that Garland has approved the opening of the investigation into Donald. He's not a declared candidate for anything, and he won't be. Uh, you know, it won't matter until an election year. I, he's not saying if, if Donald declares tomorrow, we can't stop investigating him. In fact, Lisa Monaco came out and said today, no, it doesn't matter if he declares. We're going to keep doing our investigation all the way up to the tippy top if necessary, wherever the facts and the laws lead us, you know, just like the same language that we've heard before so this memo has absolutely nothing to do with trump being investigated opening an investigation of trump continuing an investigation in trump or indicting trump does it yeah no i i agree with that entirely uh again trump could become a declared 
presidential candidate tomorrow. Um, that, that that announcement probably is coming fairly soon, right? Good. I but, hope it comes before the midterms. <laughs> yeah, I know. And 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 all that would do is add on the requirement that Merrick Garland sign off in writing on any forthcoming investigation. Like, gotta tell you, like, I, I, I you know, much as I love Matthew Graves, like, I, I, I think that was probably in the cards anyway. Right? That like, already <laughs> has to happen. You, you, do you, do you think really, honestly, everyone yeah. listening that the, 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 the DC U.S. attorney in Wyndham yeah. could just be like, let's indict him. You want to tell <laughs> Merrick? Nah. nah. That, that is fucking the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. Yeah. It's like this this conversation I've been having with uh, folks like Asha Rangappa. You know, there's three mm-hmm. specific instances in which the DOJ can announce an investigation into somebody. And uh, and I think that the times meet those qualifications. So, so I'm like trying to get I'm sending emails and calling him like just announce the investigation into Trump. You know, because before it's like, and we always say a million times, like, you don't want to announce an investigation because it could jeopardize the prosecution, right? And But in this particular case, I don't think Donald would be like, oh, dang, I had no idea they were looking at me. I should start destroying evidence now, you know? <laughs> It, it wouldn't I don't think it would make a lick of difference, but I think it would give everybody a little bit of a huh, sigh of relief if they knew that Trump was being investigated, even though you and I know he already is. Yeah, uh, I think that announcement could go really far. But I don't think because he wants to avoid being political so badly, I don't think he's going to make that kind of an announcement. And and as long as he indicts the shit out of everybody, I'm fine with it. Yeah, I I, I... I agree with that entirely. I really wish there would be a big public press conference. And, uh, you know, that's not that is might he he might appoint a, a, a special prosecutor. He might have might. He might appoint a special counsel, which I think he should have done a year ago. But, <sighs> you know, that might happen. He might come out and say, we got all the stuff from the Office of Inspector General member on January 25th when I tasked the Office of Inspector General for Department of Justice to look into you know, former Trump DOJ and current Trump DOJ officials. Uh, he didn't say Trump, but, you know, former and current DOJ officials for anything, you know, trying to overturn the election results of 2020. And, you know, the OIG, he, he Garland said in November when he testified in front of the Congress, he's like, whatever his recommendations are, I will take them and run with them. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to say no. And and I'm not curtailing this investigation in any way, shape or form. And so the OIG just they're the ones who knocked on pantsless Clark's door and, you know, went in and got his stuff. They're the ones who who exacted the Eastman search warrant for his phone. Um, And so I, you know, I can see a situation in which the Office of Inspector General makes criminal referrals to to the Department of Justice. And and then that's they they go from there. You know what I'm saying? It's like that I that's kind of unless they're just using the office of inspector general because they're short on resources, but they're not going to do this without going through the attorney general. This is too big of a case. And, and that dovetails with breaking news from today, Tuesday, as we record this, that the secret service has turned over zero emails from January 5th and 6th, zero text messages, I should say. Uh, And that, (laughs) that's it. Not only, so implausible, right? Like that, that has to lead to an investigation as to whether there was spoliation of evidence. You and com- one has been opened. The, uh, yep. the National Archives has opened one, which I'm like, eh, Yeah, really? I know. That's- the National Archives, aren't <laughs> yeah. those the guys that waited a year to tell the Department of Justice that Donald had 15 boxes stashed under the omelet bar full of top secret documents down in Florida? I don't know how I feel about the history cops taking this one, but it is being investigated. (laughs) Maybe they have the best sort of data retrieval experts, right? Who knows? I did say, I mean, what they actually said was investigate yourself. Yeah, right. right. Uh, And so, okay. um, DHS going to investigate. U.S. Secret Service going to like investigate yourself. Mm, They've already changed their story eight times anyway yeah, that that strikes me as you you, you want to get the ig in, involved but uh, again uh sort of beyond the scope of what we're talking about here but but couple that with uh the sort of bombshell announcement by liz cheney at the conclusion of last thursday's hearing that uh donald trump has already attempted to call at least one witness in the uh in connection with the january 6th hearings that you know you said this to you texted it to me i think at the time of 
you know, hey, the uh, the cover up is always worse than the crime. And mm-hmm. so, you know, yeah. all, there's all a whole of that. half of the fucking Mueller report is about yep. obstruction. <laughs> yep. And it's the it's the meaty half. Now, some some people are volume one people. I'm a volume two person. I I, I did an, an episode on the nine crimes clearly outlined in volume two. Mm-hmm. So you and I are, uh, you know, it's like uh, choosing between uh, it's, uh, Sammy Hagar. And, it's and, a sorting uh, hat, right? Yeah. Like, what? Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm in, I like I'm, my I like my Van Halen's I like my Van Halen reference better. But, I do uh, too. I do too. And 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 Volume Two is David Lee Roth. Oh yeah, Volume okay. Two is clearly uh, just yeah, just Diamond, put that out there. Diamond Dave. Yeah, Diamond um, Dave. How? All right. So <laughs> here here's another thing though that's happening, and I had so many questions about this because it confused the shit out of me. Uh, another sign that the Department of Justice is moving towards investigating or possibly indicting Meadows Yep, dropped last week. You might recall last month, Garland declined to indict Meadows for flagrantly disregarding the January 6th committee's subpoena. That's a slam dunk under 2 U.S. Code 192, which is the same charge filed against Peter Navarro and Steve Bannon, whose trial is going on as we speak today. Uh, Liz Cheney called that declination uh, puzzling. And she also, when she went through her list of patsies at the end of the last hearing, Mm -hmm. Eastman, Clark, Rudy, there was no mention of Meadows. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate kind of the the hidden shout out to last week's uh, opening arguments where I, I think, unlike Patsy Baloney, right, where the the committee was just using all carrot and no stick to try and bring him in and say, look, we put poor Cassidy Hutchinson on the stand. Like, uh, uh, do you have no heart? Right. Right. <laughs> put, we love uh, you. You're handsome. Yeah. You did nothing no, wrong. <laughs> your legs aren't too short for your body. Please come yeah. in. Yeah. And eventually he was like, all right, I'll come in. You're giving me you're, you're, you're giving me the tug bath. I'm going to come in. Yeah. Um, yeah. They Meadows, worked. they tried all carrot and no stick, and he cooperated for a little while and then got cold feet and backed out. And now what they have been doing is the car- the carrot the carrot window is fading <laughs> and the stick, <laughs> stick window, window is, is coming opening. into play. And that uh, I go through that in last week's opening arguments. Um, yes, excellent but, episode. Oh, thank you. Uh, so as part of the evidence as to why I think the, the the stick window is opening on Mark Meadows. I look to the change in the DOJ's position from their declination decision. That was the beginning of June. It right changed, back. right? Yeah. It wasn't just a, a. It changed. Yeah, this was six weeks ago, and and again they can do that because a declination decision is governed by prosecutorial discretion, and so long as you were still within the window of the statute of limitations, you can say, oh yeah, no, I, I, we changed our mind on that. Yeah, and I think what's interesting, too, is that there's been recent public reporting that Wyndham, the guy who they brought Mm. in to be in charge of, like, Team 2, the whole, you know, not the the boots-on-the-ground investigation, the the higher-level conspiratorial hub-and-spoke shit, that guy, uh, public reporting says when he first got to the department, people were like, no, we're not even talking about Trump. We're We're not even talking about Trump right now. And now... All of a sudden, not all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden for us, uh, there's this, it seems like he's convinced people otherwise, right? Yeah. I, it, I, I hope those stories are less dramatic, but yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. So six I'm sure weeks they ago. are. Yeah. I'm, yeah, sure, but, I'm sure when he got there, people were like, we're not there yet. And he was right. like, well, let's get there. Let's and, get there. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably so, what happened. So six weeks ago, the DOJ uh, said, uh, we're not going to indict Mark Meadows. And uh, they referenced a 1996 Office of Legal Counsel opinion letter that says the president is a separate branch of government. He may not compel congressmen to appear before him as a matter of separation of powers. Congress may therefore not compel him to appear before it. Then goes on to say the president's close advisors are an extension of the president. Accordingly, not only can the president invoke executive privilege to protect his personal staff from the necessity of answering questions posed by a congressional committee, but he can also direct them not even to appear before the committee. Thus, 
The president and his immediate advisors should be deemed absolutely immune from testimonial compulsion by a congressional committee. Okay, this is limited only to congressional testimony compulsion. Uh, that, that letter continues. They may not only not be examined with respect to their official duties, they may not even be compelled to appear before a congressional committee. Yep. And this is the OLC memo that Meadows put in yep. there. Scavino put it in there. I think even Navarro tried it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this was the memo, right? That that they were like, look, we are, we're advised. I think even Bannon tried to use it, which is hilarious. Uh, but he's like, look, you can't, you can't, right? Because, and that memo said, and it was cited in this declination decision for Meadows uh, for contempt of Congress, that there is absolute immunity. Yep. Uh, for, 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 People like Meadows and Scavino. So the big problem I see with that, other than all OLC memos are stupid, uh, because, <laughs> because Office of Legal Counsel is appointed by and reports to the president. Yep. Uh, is that Trump isn't the president anymore. <laughs> You're right. And it seems like our founding fathers knew that since they tried Aaron Burr for murder and treason. <laughs> and now it looks like the Department of Justice is signaling that while they may have relied on principles articulated in that OLC memo, they're not bound by it when it comes to Mark Meadows. So, first of all, how did this come up? And what was it? I, I guess we could only speculate on what made them change their minds. Did they actually change their minds? Or, you know, how did this whole thing come up? Yeah, let me let me work back to front. I, I think it is fair speculation that they changed their minds. Right. And the the ground, right, is really, really easy from a legal perspective. So, again, remember, DOJ is bound by OLC memos that are binding on the specific matter instructed in that memorandum. Right. That is the reason why, famously, Robert Mueller said, we cannot issue a traditional prosecutorial decision here because he felt bound by the OLC memo that says you cannot indict a sitting president. Never minding that no court has ever taken that position. If the Office of Legal Counsel takes that position and it applies line for line specifically to the present situation, DOJ is bound by it. But notice in what I read, and, and this is kind of the gravamen of the second half of your question, this OLC memorandum does not speak to former presidents and former presidents, former chiefs of staff. Right. It says the problem is a separation of powers thing. Right. That the president can't call up a member of Congress and be like, AOC, I want you to get in here to my office uh, and uh, sit down for 12 hours of testimony uh, that, uh, you know, I'm going to make the White House counsel extract from you as to X. Y. He can't do that. The president doesn't have the power to compel Congress to come before it. So Congress shouldn't have the power to compel the sitting president to come before it. Right. Or chief of staff or and, high and, level people. And then that got extended. And then the president also includes the president's chief of staff. And again, this is if you think, right, Mitch McConnell would not, you know, just 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 imagine, right, a Republican Senate or a Republican House uh, and, uh, you know, high ranking Republicans saying, oh, OK, uh, we can compel uh, presidential staff here. Guess what? We're going to have the president's chief of staff appear before us every day for the rest of his term. Right. Mm. And and that would be a ridiculous breach of separation of powers. It would make it impossible for Joe Biden to do his job. So separation of powers concern says, all right, we don't want Congress to be able to shut down the executive office by compelling the president. Therefore, we're going to say the, the the reverse applies. Not sure I agree with the logic, but but there it is. Uh, and so therefore, Congress can't uh, make the president or his close advisors appear. But he, as we've said, Trump is the president. <laughs> um, so. Right. They uh, all sat down and had a meeting and said, uh, we don't think this applies. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and here's Garland, oh, Garland agreed. Yes. Signed off on this <laughs> filing. So now let me get back. That was then the first half of your question. Yeah. Here's how this came about. OK, so after receiving the subpoena from the January 6th committee, right, that was uh, when Meadows had begun his voluntary cooperation and then rescinded it. 
And then the committee was like, okay, fine, we're going to subpoena you to testify. And then Meadows was like, okay, well, fine, I'm just going to ignore it. And I'm going to bring a lawsuit uh, in U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia before I, I should add Judge Carl Nichols, the, the Trump appointee who is the present presiding judge in the Steve Bannon trial, the one who said, I agree, after uh, Steve Bannon's lawyer, like he ruled against all of uh, Steve Bannon's uh, uh, motions in limine and Steve Bannon's lawyer grumbled like, I don't see why we should even bother going to trial if I can't present any of my farcical dumbass defenses. And the judge was like, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah that's stupid. <laughs> should have taken, taken a plea deal, you should dumbass. Should have taken a deal, right, exactly. <laughs> like like um, the kind they offered to Navarro and he rejected. Yep. And, and yeah, uh, we could do a whole show on that as well. So I, I'm not going to take the bait and go down that rabbit trail. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's good. So Meadows brings a declaratory judgment DJ suit and says, hey, I want a ruling from you that I am immune from testimony. And Judge Nichols uh, uh, three weeks ago said, um, yeah, looked what... over at the DOJ and said, what say you? Yeah, exactly. Looks like all of the arguments that are being raised by Mark Meadows depend on that OLC memo, that 1996 OLC memo or related memoranda, uh, the, you know, the one that I, I read to you about five minutes ago. So it, quote, invited the Department of Justice to file an amicus brief on or before July 15th. And the Department of Justice did exactly that. Yeah. And 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 so basically what what the Department of Justice is saying here is that, the, you know, we thought about it. There isn't absolute immunity for ex-presidents, former chiefs of staff. <laughs> uh, and, and so this is, it's the, that's when I started asking you the questions, right? Because it said there, there could be qualified immunity uh, in, in this particular case, but that doesn't apply in what we're talking about. So I feel like here's what happened. I feel like, and, and I know you don't want to take the Navarro bait, but Navarro <laughs> was cited for contempt. Well, he was referred to the DOJ for contempt. Then the DOJ subpoenaed him for communications with Trump with regards to his January 6th committee subpoena. And he came in that day, June 2nd, and apparently was offered a plea deal and said, hey, look, We'll take one of the counts away and we'll only put in for 30 days, which is the minimum. That's a mandatory minimum. And he's told them to go fuck themselves. And so the next day they indicted him. I think maybe something similar happened to Meadows. <laughs> they subpoenaed him for information. And by the way, that subpoena for Navarro said, don't tell anyone. You know, uh, it would help us out if you didn't tell anyone. He didn't seem like the target in that subpoena. I think they did the same thing to Meadows. And, and the Meadows came in and they offered him a deal. And I don't know if he took it, but he didn't say, fuck you. I, I, I think that's right. And I think as as you talk about uh, be, as you talk about Navarro, for example, two USC 192 is the only criminal statute that applies when you have a congressional subpoena that you deliberately ignore. It is it is a misdemeanor on its face. A as you've said, it requires a mandatory month in prison uh, and statutory maximum of one year in prison. Right. So you have a tiny, tiny window, but it, it also does not require proof of intent. I mean, you know, it just it this is an incredibly easy crime to prove. Right. Like yeah. you have to prove. Did you get the subpoena? <laughs> and then did you show up? Did you show up? <laughs> yeah. And like Steve Bannon's lawyer. Right. Like there, there's not a whole lot in the way of defenses. Right. Like Yeah. And the easy way to, to get out of this would have been to show up and just yeah. plead the fifth all day. You, we saw John. There's a reason, you know, John Eastman showed up. Uh, Michael Flynn who, you know, thinks laws don't apply if there's gold fringe on the flag showed up, right? Like yeah. these mm -hmm. people were there because their lawyers said to them, yeah, if you if you don't, it's a slam dunk to convict you of a crime and put you in jail for a month. You want to go to jail for a month? Great. Don't show up. You, you yeah. want to avoid that? Show up and just say fifth to everything. And right. they were like, wait, what if they ask me? Do I think that there should be a lawful transfer of power in the United States? Yeah, uh, it, yeah. Say fifth to that. What the hell do I care, right? And 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 so they did that, right? And so the the 
I think that is absolutely sort of dead on in terms of speculation uh, as to DOJ kind of going like, look, man, like we we offered you an overly generous deal here and you you told us to go to go fuck ourselves. So, okay, um, if that's the way you want it, (laughs) that's how we're going to play it. This guy clearly isn't going to give us his communications with Trump. Let's just indict him and start the start the fair trial, the speedy the speedy trial clock. Yep. Uh, but one of the main questions that I didn't quite understand was: Did the Department of Justice decline to prosecute Meadows for contempt because of the memo, or was it for some other purpose? And does that now mean they can indict him for contempt? Yep. Uh, and, and are they are they kind of inviting the January 6th committee to be like, go ahead, put your subpoena in again. Go ahead. Like- I, I, I absolutely read it that way. And and I want a little bit of caution on that third point. But I, I absolutely read this as number one. Uh, the reliance for the declination decision was that OLC counsel and related memoranda. Uh, number two, uh, that they acknowledged that it was not a tight fit at the time, right? Like that in order to get to the principles articulated in that memoranda, you, the the second you start to sort of peel beneath the surface, you realize, Oh, these might be good arguments with respect to a, a sitting president's existing chief of staff. They're not great when you're talking about the last guy's former chief of staff. Um, and that is essentially what this, uh, amicus brief says it, it articulates the separation of powers argument and it articulates the the frank counsel argument right and i have i've made this on this show and elsewhere you do want at the core of executive privilege is the idea that you want a president in times of crisis to be able to ask about unbelievably stupid things and Get good advice and have somebody be like, no, man, that that would be really, yeah, that's really illegal. Dumb. That's stupid. Right. That's da da da. That's yeah. that's and that's what Cipollone is basically saying is calling privilege uh, when he's testifying. He's, he's like, look, when the president solicited legal advice from me and I gave it to him, I'm not going to tell you what that conversation was about, because if I do, then future presidents will have to tell you all the dumbass shit that they ask. Uh, and that's that's you don't want that. Yeah. And and we want to preserve that. Right. And 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 by the way, I mean, this is an overlap with, you know, why the Hillary Clinton emails quote scandal. And if you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, you, you, you know, you, you should feel bad about that decision. Now, I can <laughs> talk to you offline about ways to make up for that. But but the entire reason for that for her segregating her emails was that she knew she was going to be a candidate for president she knew she was seeking and conveying frank advice in rapidly developing situations and didn't want to have her words of frank counsel to the president be used against her in a political capacity and that's what executive privilege is meant to protect right for Obama to say, oh, hey, um, uh, you know, they've they've just taken over our embassy. I don't know. Should we nuke them? Right. And like, that's a terrible idea. But you want the president to be able to say, uh, hey, uh, you know, to my uh, closest advisors to my cabinet, um, you know, sh- should we nuke somebody and have to be like, Mr. President, that would be a terrible idea. OK, no, I, uh, I was pretty sure that was a bad idea, but uh but but good. Yeah, that, that's right. Keep me on my toes. Right. And and same thing with Pat Cipollone. You want the president to ask, hey, if I do this, does it break the law? Right. <laughs> because presumably future presidents are interested in that question to know what they should not do rather than what they should just go ahead and do anyway. So right. frank advice, very, very important. But think of how less important that is in the context of former presidential advisors right particularly you know usually and again you have the weird situation of donald trump and uh, you know grover cleveland uh but but generally speaking like you lose that election and you know that's that's the end of your time in elective office so embarrassing the last guy is less important uh in you know terms of constitutional debate than 
embarrassing the current guy, which is crucially important. So, yeah. And and another question I had was, how do you know? You had said that this is a this makes it this shows that the DOJ changed their mind on what the memo meant. What what uh, in this filing speaks to them changing their mind and not simply telling the judge what they thought back then? So great question. A, a couple of things there. And Is it because they cited the OLC memo in their declination or? So there was never a formal written declination decision that was issued, right? There were questions that were answered that said, hey, the reason we went forward against Navarro and not against Meadows had to do with the closeness of executive privilege, right? And uh, the, this particular OLC memorandum was discussed, right? Not declared binding. That would have made this sort of a harder move. But here are the things that, that, in my view, have happened. So, number one, this was an invitation to file an amicus brief in a civil lawsuit. So the DOJ could have just said, we, we declined to write anything. They could have written a one-pager that says, notwithstanding the fact that the DOJ has views on this, those views are currently the subject of ongoing uh, investigations, and therefore we decline uh, to stake a position that might prejudice, you know, our ongoing investigations. Right? They could have said that. Instead, what they did was they came out and said, once the president becomes a private citizen, Congress cannot use the questioning of his immediate advisors to extract promises from the witnesses about or unduly influence their future official conduct or to otherwise exert an imperious control over the executive branch. And compelling testimony from immediate advisors to a former president obviously does not prevent them or him from performing any official duties. Right. So they went back and said, yeah, no, we we, we don't think we are bound at all. Right. That paragraph is we are not bound by those OLC memoranda because this is a Mark Meadows is a former chief of staff to a former president, not a current chief of staff to a current president. Right. But is it have we always thought that? Did we think that when we declined to prosecute Mark or do is the did we think that back then? And now we don't think that anymore because it feels to me like the way I read it was we didn't use this OLC memo when we declined to to prosecute Mark. Uh, we used prosecutorial discretion. And, you know, it didn't it, it doesn't say why, like what the declination reason was, but that's what it felt like to me. Or is it actually saying, no, our reason for not indicting was the OLC memo and now it's not anymore. So he's opened for that. So in classic lawyerly fashion, I think that's both right. Mm -hmm. I, I think what they are saying is we exercised our discretion not to indict Meadows. In that, it, it, as an initial and we're not matter, tell you why. as an initial matter of first impression, and uh, we are not going to say we think X absolutely prohibits that the OLC uh, memoranda absolutely prohibits that. We didn't say that then. We're not saying it now. What we're saying is a declination, prosecutorial discretion is based on a complex of factors, including do we think we're likely to win, right? And so. We viewed at the time that some of the things that might interfere with our ability to win might include this OLC memorandum. But if you're asking, do we feel confident going into a court and arguing that this OLC memorandum does not apply to Mark Meadows? Well, here's your answer, right? We will walk into a court and say, nope. So do you think this bolsters the theory that he it maybe isn't necessarily cooperating, but isn't saying fuck you? Uh, like Navarro, or is this more along the lines of bolstering the idea that they decided not to prosecute Meadows because he did cooperate a little bit and it would be kind of maybe a harder case to win? I, it, I guess we don't know the answer to that. We we don't. But again, I will sort of defer to my carrot and stick approach, right? Like, I think that uh, that that Meadows is going through both of those sets of calculations. We know that the carrot alone is not sufficient, right? Because he started cooperating and then pulled back. And why did he pull back? You know, at, at donors in Trump world future, I, who knows, right? I am not going to go live in Mark Meadows' head for even a moment. 
Okay. But given every crime that he's been involved in, there's a big fucking stick. It, and, it, it, and I don't know if they've <laughs> wielded it yet or not. But, I... <laughs> but Trump lawyers down in Trumpville are worried uh, that Trump's going to get indicted. And they're prepping to make Meadows the fall guy because they think he's going to be indicted. And I have to say, Andrew, they're going to know better probably than most people because Trump and his pack are paying for the legal counsel, the attorneys, for at least a dozen witnesses and getting through those lawyers everything that the interviewers, the prosecutors, and the investigators are looking for. Like, that's why people in Trump world are able to say Trump reads the transcripts. He gets yep. them through these lawyers, like the Passantino was representing Cassidy Hutchinson. And so for her first three or first two, I guess, two or three uh, meetings, all of those transcripts went to Passantino, and of course he delivered them to Donald. And and who knows how many other people that's happening with, whether they're being interviewed by the January 6th committee or whether they're being interviewed by grand juries. So he's going to know, and the fact that he thinks Meadows is going to be indicted and could be the fall guy leads me to believe they know a lot more than we do about what's going on with the investigations into Meadows. That is absolutely correct. The, the, the Passantino stuff, I, I we, we just cannot emphasize highly enough with respect to that asymmetry of information. We learned that from Cassidy Hutchinson's really moving testimony of, you know, Mark Meadows saying to her, like, hey, you know, uh, Donald reads those transcripts like. The, uh, well, you know. a go between uh, uh, not, yes. not Meadows yes. himself, but yeah, yeah somebody uh, saying who I think is Ben Williamson. I somebody right. <laughs> somebody saying Meadows wants you to know he loves you and you look right. nice yeah. and you have great hair and that. You know, you know, you're loyal. If the word loyal wasn't in there, I'd question the whole thing. Mm. Loyal and uh, et cetera. And, and the, you know, the other people saying, we, you know, he reads the transcripts and, you know, because your fucking lawyer gave them to him. <laughs> so. Right. And, and, and specifically about a president that doesn't read anything. Right. So that that to me. OK, they probably make picture drawings and do <laughs> some, you know, story time there's, with there's, yeah, Donnie there's, at the omelet bar. There's no doubt in my mind that that Pasadino just gives a like little smiley face or frowny face on the top of, you know, is, is this person loyal or are they not loyal? But but red, but green, yes. or yellow today, red, <laughs> green or yellow. Yeah. Uh, but but yes. Right. Like all of that uh, comes together with the framing at the beginning of the last January 6th hearing in which Liz Cheney said, we are still interviewing and talking to people in Trump world. And they have changed their tune. They used to say, no, it didn't happen. And this was that. And, you know, good thing that good people talked him out of it. And now to a man and they're almost all men, uh, they ha they're all saying, oh, it's just the cadre of crazies that really wanted to do the insurrection. Right. Yeah. Those and are her people... going on to say Trump's defense now seems to be making Eastman or Clark and she or Cipollone, the fall guy, like she's lists off all these potential patsies. I don't think Cipollone was on there, but, you know, and that first statement that you made combined with the fact that she left Meadows off of that mm -hmm. fucking list. Doop, doop, doop. My, I, you know, I had uh, the sirens and all sorts of things happening in my head at that moment. Me too. That is, I think, and 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 I said this on OA. That to me was the balance between the carrot and stick. She did not say Mark Meadows in that list, but if you're Mark Meadows and you are watching and listening and reading these transcript committee hearing, reading the transcripts of the committee hearings, which you are. Right. Because you committed crimes in connection with these hearings <laughs> and they've treated you real well so far, despite the fact that the documents are really, really bad for you. Right. Despite the fact that in January you are saying, hey, to to Richard Engel, uh, to Steve Engel and to uh, Rich Donahue and Jeff Rosen. Hey, have Jeff Clark investigate this nonsense claim in Georgia that Cleta Mitchell referred to me that there, there's an email with Mark Meadows name on that dated January one. OK, long after he knows the elections over, the electors have been chosen. Right. Like it's done. It's over. And you are still saying, uh, hey, uh, go out and, you know, uh, get, why don't you go uh, lean hard into Ruby Freeman again, which is, you know, what what it's asking him to do. Um, 
that they have deliberately downplayed his role. They have deliberately downplayed those documents. That's the carrot part. The stick part is uh, uh, you will be if this breaks up, if if your test, if your failure to testify means that Trump skates on this and the highest that we can go is crazy world. Guess what? That population includes you, Mark. Yeah, it's the crazy world population. You. Yeah, also of note, Judge Carter didn't mention Meadows at all, really, yep. when talking about the Eastman Trump scheme. So he's just sort of been real quiet, sort of flying under the radar. Uh, there's, in my head, there's no way he's not at least in talks with the Department of Justice about what's coming down the pike. Um, there's just no way. And I think that it's very interesting that this DOJ filing came out, kind of solidifies everything that we said about the fact that the, this investigation will continue regardless of this memo that everybody's freaking out about from, from Merrick Garland and, and that, you know, Meadows isn't subject to absolute immunity um, when it comes to the executive branch or congressional testimony. And so now that opens the door for for Congress to be like, come on in. I, I, I think that's right. And look, Mark Meadows is, you know, rather like Patsy Baloney, you know, the, the Forrest Gump of uh, Trump on in terms of he's at he's at ground zero on everything. He's chief of staff to the president. Right. He was the guy relaying all of the crazy requests up to January 6th. To everybody, he was the guy who was point person on Trump's speech. I mean, just he wanted like, to go to the Willard on the fifth. Yeah, to and, the war. And Hutchinson, a twenty-five-year-old aide, is like, maybe not the best idea. Yeah. And and of course, when they brought up that phone conversation that he had for thirty minutes in the car, where he kept slamming the door on Cassidy Hutchinson, that yeah. wouldn't have been brought up if they didn't know who he was talking to. Yep. Uh, so it's. I think, and and of course, Carol Lenig, who has her finger on the pulse of what's going on in the Department of Justice more than I do, uh, told Deadline White House, keep your eyes out for more from the DOJ. Uh, and, sh and then she said very deliberately and slowly, that is my uh, opinion, my informed opinion, and my informed characterization so, you know, so to speak, of, of what uh, of what Department of Justice is doing. And so I think we might be about to get some pretty big news with regards to Meadows, because Meadows and Trump have nothing to do with the fucking midterm elections. So there's no political weight here, uh, no political interference, no political issue, no violation of the Hatch Act, et cetera. He hasn't even declared. I hope he declares before the midterms. That would be a very big, huge present for the Democrats. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for explaining that to me, because I was I was like, what are they saying? Did they say it before? Are they saying it now? Did they change their mind? So I appreciate you running through that with me. Yeah, I, I, I just want to leave you with, with one more thing, which is Mark Meadows is represented by George J. Terwilliger the Third, <laughs> who and is famous for saying, "Look, I am not Sidney Powell. I am yeah. not Rudy Giuliani. I am not Lynn Wood. I yep. am George Terwilliger the Third. <laughs> and the the Terwilligers. Now again, you know, Bill, you know, put the Bill Barr sized error bars on this, but I mean, it has been." Uh, an AUSA, uh, the, the Terwilligers are deeply rooted in institutional Republican politics. They are not Trumpers. They are nope, not. He's not yeah. one of the lawyers that Trump's paying for. No, nope. he is not the Passantinos of the world. Uh, but and, you know, so then you might say, well, how do you know that Trump is getting information on Meadows? Well, I'm sure there are billions of people that he's paying that have been interviewed about Meadows that aren't Meadows. <laughs> yeah. And and. And Meadows has not publicly broken from the president, right? So there are lots of there are lots and lots of ways uh, in which this is a very very tough situation. If you are Mark Meadows, to have to to try and make it, it's a, a easy choice. for me. It's easy to me. It's it's a it's a glaringly easy choice to me. Just tell everybody the truth. What are you going to run for president one day, and you're not going to have the Trump base there? You, you're already hated. Uh, it's. There's no coming back from this. The only way you're going to get a nice job commentating for a news network and maybe a book deal is if you take the John Dean route. 
yep. and not the John Mitchell route because you will be in the dustbin of history and in prison. Although you know you might have to plead guilty and go to jail for a little bit, uh, but your your the substantialness, the absolute substantial help that he could give to the Department of Justice would lower his sentence considerably. I could not put it any better than that, so I will end with your statement there. Go the John Dean route, not the John Mitchell route. Love it. <laughs> Thanks. All right, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for letting us break these things down for you. We appreciate you being there to listen to us. Otherwise, we're just sort of talking to each other, which is also not bad. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, uh, we're going to see you next week. We've, we'll be talking about probably a little bit about that primetime hearing that's happening tomorrow night. I think we might maybe get some of that Meadows news that we've been waiting for. And if we do, we will cover it here on Cleanup on Aisle 45. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andrew Torres. See you next week. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.